And now, on today's program... Let's see where it takes us today. Roger that. And welcome aboard. Capturing this millisecond. It's a fraction of a second. It's the only thing interesting. Welcome to the Fuji Love Podcast. Today we talk to a long-time professional photographer, or to be more precise, an outdoor travel and adventure photographer that has worked for many top clients and publications such as The Outside Magazine, Discovery Channel and National Geographic. He has written a number of books and e-books, of which the newest about mastering the Fujifilm X system has just been updated. And by the end of this podcast, you maybe will be able to win two copies of his books. Let's talk about it. Joining us from Anchorage, Alaska, welcome to the Fujilove podcast, Dan Bailey. Hi, Jens. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Such a pleasure. Tell us, first things first, who is Dan Bailey? Uh, that's a very good question, and you'll get a, a different answers depending on who you ask. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I consider myself an energetic uh, outdoor athlete and photographer, and I I've been shooting professionally for 22 years. Uh, I've been a photographer for my entire adult life. And I've been intrigued by uh, bicycles and uh, the, just exploring the outdoors and playing outside for my entire life, pretty much. Now, 22 years is a long time. Uh, what was your way into photography? Where did that start? Like, can you give us an oversight over your journey from the first time you picked up a camera to where you are now? Yeah, I'd say there, there's kind of two phases to that. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a couple of Kodak Instamatics, uh, the little the little Kodaks that were shaped like an ice cream sandwich. Yep. And uh, and then the little Instamatic X35, which I still have one on my shelf here. Uh, just a classic little Kodak, you know, beginner camera. And, and I would take, uh, pictures on hiking trips a couple times and, um, you know, nothing serious and, you know, on rare occasion. And I didn't really think much of it, but it was fun to have pictures, you know, just like, you know, as most people would back in the day, uh, when I was 20, when I was 22, I was, at the time attending Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and I was majoring in recording engineering and music production uh, and guitar. And I had a work study job, so I actually had some little bit of disposable income. And I just thought that, you know, it would be kind of fun to buy a camera again, uh, and this time buy a nice one. And I hadn't really given much thought to what I'd do with it, but I just, it just seemed like an appealing, appealing thing to get into again. And so I, I bought my first camera uh, in 1990, and that was a Nikon FM2 with a 50 millimeter 1.4 lens. And I fell in love with photography from my first role. I had this, you know, this new passion that that I, like I said, I'd experimented with the, just you know snapshots with my little Kodaks before then. But this, I found myself immersing. I found. I, that I enjoyed immersing myself in the process of photography. And I just started learning as much as I can. And I bought a couple of books and I'd walk around the city of Boston and I, you know, ironically, I, I got my big start as a street photographer, you know, just shooting scenes around the city. Yeah. And so that was 1990. Um, by 1995, uh, I, at the end of 90, 
95, I moved to Colorado. Uh, and that was actually my home state. I was born there. And I just wanted to get away from the city and, and, and start doing more outdoor activities. Uh, I wanted to get back into things like climbing and, and mountain biking. And, and I figured, well, and, and I wanted to be an outdoor photographer. Uh, by then, I had decided, when I graduated from music college, I had decided that, okay, that was a lot of fun. But I think I'd rather be a photographer as a career. I wasn't sure how to make that happen, but I figured the best way to start would be to move to back to a mountain environment. And so I moved to Colorado in 19, end of 1995. And a year later, uh, I had been working at a, a Kodak CD scanning lab in Fort Collins. And a year after I moved, I got fired from my day job by my jerk boss, who came back from lunch after too many drinks. And he sent me on my way, and I freaked out and panicked for about an hour. And then I realized, you know, wait a minute, this is my chance. This is my chance to do what I love and try to make it as a photographer. So that was October 4th, 1996. Which is uh, quite a while ago. Was it clear to you that by going into photography, it will draw you automatically to nature? Well, yeah. By, so by, by that time, I had been a real, uh, uh, a real enthusiast Uh, student of Galen Rowell's. Uh, I had read a lot of his books, and I had, in fact, attended one of his workshops in northern Nepal uh, a couple years prior. So I, I was very familiar with the, the notion of being, of what an adventure an outdoor photographer entailed, and, and, and I was intrigued by the, you know, the way that he did it, which was you're a first-person participant in the activities that you're doing. You're hiking, and you're climbing, you're traveling with your camera, you know, you're not, you're not shooting it from afar. You're right there immersed in the action and the, and the culture. And that really appealed to me. And, and as did the, the notion of traveling light and fast with your gear and not being burdened down by so much, so much stuff. Uh, and so I knew, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the style of, of what I wanted to, you know, I, I knew the style of what I wanted to shoot. Uh, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to follow in the footsteps of Galen. Was, it, was he your, your mentor or just basically your, your main inspiration to, to go forward from there? Yeah, he was my main inspiration. He was my idol. He was, uh, in, he was a mentor. As I said, I did a workshop with him. So I did get some one-on-one -on -one time with him. And I, I asked him, you know, one, I remember asking one day, what, how do you succeed as a pro photographer? You know, aside from the, you know, being really good at what you do, Uh, and having the right contacts, what are some tips to, to being a, a sustaining a pro career? And the thing that he told me was that the thing that has worked for him, that was working for him at the time, was to diversify as much as possible. And so he identified nine different areas where he made money. And those included assignments, uh, stock sales, book sales, speaking fees, workshops, um, selling prints. So a real variety of you know, magazine columns, writing. So a real variety of income sources. And so I've always tried to, to follow that throughout my career. And, uh, and I've been adapting that, um, kind of adapting that professional workflow continuously over the past 20 years. If, if somebody would ask you the same question today, like as you asked him, would you, would you give the same advice still or you think things change? 
No, I, I think that advice still holds. Uh, the, the world is, has, the world of photography has changed dramatically, but it always changes. And, and, and every, every profession that you do changes. And, you know, there's no profession that people do now that looks exactly the same 20, as it did 20 years ago. And so I think being able to diversify and, and especially as a freelance, you know, creative, have as many types of projects that you can be comfortable with uh, without spreading yourself too thin. I guess be competent as, you know, for example, maybe somebody these days, uh, well, I'm doing, I'll give you an example of what I do. I have, I shoot, I still shoot assignments. I still have a, some stock sales, although it's not the stock and the stock agency income isn't what it used to be. Um, so I've had to supplement that by writing and blogging and writing eBooks and having book published, uh, having books published. And, and now I'm dabbling in video very daintily with, a, with, a dipping my toe into the pool with that. And I, I think I'm actually inspired by how many possibilities there are for photographers and creative types and artists to make their way in the world by setting their own agenda and, and taking control of their own destiny. I think the technology and the opportunities allow for that. Now, we talked about this just uh, shortly before we went on the air. So you've been recently also uh, exploring uh, video, uh, almost being a bit afraid of the, of the possibilities that open up to you. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I remember a number of years ago, uh, a professional contact of mine told me, you know, you got to shoot video. You're going to have to shoot video if you're going to succeed in this business. And I just shook my head and I'm thinking, there's no way. I, I'm just, I was scared of it. I was, it was a big Pandora's box for me. And, and I was scared that, uh, I mean, it, it seemed like a foreign concept to me because, you know, five, six, even 10 years ago, when, when the advent of video, basically when, when modern cameras started to include video capabilities, You know, I just, I, I wasn't interested and, and, and for a couple of reasons. The, the first reason is, reason is because I, I still hold to the power of a still image. I, I think a, a still photograph ignites the imagination and has a visual impact and emotional impact on a viewer that's unmatched. Uh, and it, it, I love the way that, that a photographer can abbreviate a subject and portray it with a certain color palette or, uh, you know, exposure and subject inclusion or exclusion. And that can create an emotional response and it, it incite the viewer to imagine the rest of the scene or imagine what it's like to be there. And I think photography does that in a different way than video. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't a better way, but I'm, I've been intrigued by that way for my entire career. At the same time, I love movies, and I, I think there's a real craft to making a good movie. And so my part of my fear was, was that, uh, I don't know, I just I felt that when I'm shooting stills and immersing myself in photos, it's a different mindset than trying to shoot video. And so I, I, I couldn't picture myself moving seamlessly back and forth. And then there's the whole Pandora's box of, And times massive time suck and equipment, you know, necessities of bigger hard drive, more hard drives, bigger, faster computer, editing, more time for editing, more software. It just seemed like it was a 
a world that required too much time and too much additional equipment. And I find myself limited on time anyway, as it is. So I, I was scared of video in the past. But now you actually opened a Pandora's box. So you, you, you are, you have exposed yourself to the possible fascination. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is the case. And, and I've dabbled a little bit in the past, you know, my Fuji cameras have been video capable ever since the X-T1. And, and so I've been shooting little clips over the years and, and I'm kind of fascinated by, you know, shooting short clips and piecing them together into a, you know, a two or three minute little piece and which I often use for self-promotion. And, and I'm, I think I see that as being one of the biggest ways that I will continue to use it. Uh, self-promotion, but also just, you know, maybe as an introduction for a video, for a, a workshop, an online workshop or an online course, uh, you know, short, short creative tips that I can give out to my readers and followers. Um, I don't, I don't really see myself doing a full fledged video project yet, but that being said, Uh, I just did a project. Uh, so Rebecca Rush, who's a, a world-class and champion, longtime champion mountain biker and cyclist and athlete, she came up to do a winter endurance race here in Alaska uh, that follows the Iditarod Trail for 300 miles. And she did that on her fat bike. And, and I had worked with her, Rebecca last year on a project And so she wanted me to document her experience doing this extreme winter race. And she wanted video. And, and, and so I worked with her media partner and we actually got money from outside TV and Red Bull. Uh, Red Bull is one of Rebecca's main sponsors. And the idea was that we're going to produce some video content for them to do some kind of a short, uh, some kind of a short, uh, either a TV show on outside TV, an episode, or maybe a longer Uh, a longer documentary. I felt confident saying yes, because I have the X-T3 now, which is massively capable for video. And I got a little external microphone and I got a lavalier mic uh, that I could do for interviews. And I figured, you know, I, I have, I, I know how light and, you know, I'm good with light and framing and I'm good at recognizing capturing moments. And so I just use those skills to capture moments of video out on the trail. And I found myself shooting not very many stills. And, and that kind of goes back to what I said. When I'm shooting video, I'm not thinking stills and vice versa. So when I was sharing a lot of the content from the, the event while we, were, while we were doing this, most of them were screen grabs. And a lot of times I would just take a picture of the back of the Fuji uh, screen with my phone you know, and capture a, a screen grab of a video clip we were shooting. So... When we got back, I, you know, dumped all that stuff to a hard drive and we sent it off to outside TV. So fortunately, I don't have to do any of the editing on the final project. And I anticipate doing some editing uh, to do, to pull out my own personal clips. And especially while I'll do one to promote, to kind of highlight how good the X-T3 is for video. But at this point, I don't see myself taking on full projects. Uh, I'm, I'm just not ready for that. And I'm just not really interested in that yet. That, that box is still too big, still, still too scary for me. So there still is a part of Pandora's box left because maybe you'll discover the creative options of editing your own footage. Currently, you, you're shooting and kind of providing the material. But I mean, 
being a director in that sense is is a very creative and interesting part of of the work as well. Yeah, and it's it's funny that you say that because I I, I found that I that I am a good director because I know what I want. I, I have the experience with with light and imagery and 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 subject framing and motion. I have a a solid I have a confident understanding with that. So I found that translates into making me a good director. I also have an audio background, audio engineering, and a music background. And so I, I can envision clips and I can envision the types of sound and audio that could potentially go with those clips. And I've downloaded the trial version of Final Cut Pro. And so I'm learning how to use that software. And I'm finding that it's, that it's not as intimidating as I thought it would be. Final Cut Pro is actually pretty easy to, to figure out. It actually is. There's there's a lot of a lot of drag and drop in there, and it's it's, it's quite easy to learn. Well, I figured what we have in common is I learned audio engineering as well, and uh, I'm interested in what you think about is is the future photographer is 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 it a multidisciplinary kind of creative uh, provider of content? Uh, I think it is, but I, I I I agree with that notion, but I I still think it's whatever you want it to be, uh, because there are some photographers who who have transitioned to video on a, on a big way. And there are some photographers who have still have transitioned to other things. I consider myself in that second camp because I, much of my uh, energy in the past few years has been devoted to writing. And so I found blogging and writing and writing eBooks to be very fulfilling and, and very, and, it, and it's, it's, it's ended up being a successful venture for me. And, and I, the thing that I, that I come to terms with is when I get up in the morning, I find that the, the first things that go through my head are, what am I going to write about today? You know, what, what thing about photography, what mystery or what technique or what, what creative mindset am I going to write about today with photography and share with my followers? And, you know, what, and I, th I'm, I think that that, that dictates, if, if there's something that, that sparks your interest as soon as you wake up, that's what you're going to be best at, and that's what you should follow. Fully agree, and it seems to work quite well. You are one of the top 25 uh, outdoor slash landscape blogs of 2018, right? Yeah, I've gotten a few of those top, uh, top blog rankings. I've gotten a couple of top 100 rankings, and then the Outdoor Junkies uh, last year gave me a top 25 rating. So I was really honored to receive that because I've been working really hard on my blog for the past 10 years or so. And it, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a project, it's a labor of love for me. And I really am proud of the, the stuff that I've written about on my blog. And I, the other thing is, is I'm, I'm really excited about, about the people that I've met and the avenues that I've been able to explore most of which have come through my blog from somehow these days. You know, I, I, when I, I used to send out lots of promo cards and I used to make lots of cold calls and do traditional marketing. And while I would still advocate people do that, again, I find myself, you know, what do I do when I get up? I write, I start writing. And, and I, I'm a firm believer of if you do what you love, you'll find success and you'll, 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 pave your way in the world. And so that's, that's what happened. What's happened to me. I, I get up and I write about photography and my writing has attracted people and it's brought me income and it's brought me a lot of different opportunities. 
I couldn't agree more, especially about the part uh, you should do what you love and become really, really good at it. Um, to put this a bit in perspective, you say you do this for 10 years. How long did it take you to build some traction on your blog? Uh, so I started, I think I wrote my first blog post. Uh, I, I was on a ski trip in Canada and a friend of mine was a real computer savvy guy and, and he suggested that I started blogging and I had no idea what that was about. And that was probably 2000 and I don't know if that was 2007 we were doing that. And so I think I published my first blog post in 2008. Uh, and And so he, you know, he, he told me about this, uh, this thing called WordPress. And so I downloaded WordPress and I started writing and my first few blog posts were just, Oh, here's a photo I shot. Here's a photo I shot. Oh, here's a, a, here's an adventure we did last weekend. Here's some photos. But then I started getting intrigued by writing other things. And I remember writing, uh, it was right around then that, that Kodachrome, uh, had, I think it was sh shortly after I started writing that Kodachrome had, had closed, had announced that they were going to, you know, close their last lab, uh, or or stop making Kodachrome, or right, they stopped making Kodachrome, and then the last lab closed shortly after. And so I wrote a piece about Kodachrome. Uh, I, I I wrote, yeah, I found that I wrote a couple of pers uh, just longer perspective pieces and and professional insight. You know, and I had been working as a, a pro for a few years, so I had experience to draw from. The, the, the big thing that, that kind of launched me forward with that was when I moved to Alaska in the end of 2008, uh, I was coming off of a pretty good year. But as we all know, 2009 hit and the economy crashed everywhere. And so I was a new guy in town in the beginning of a bad economy. And so I was desperately trying to figure out how to make things work. And so I actually uh, did some online content writing for about a month and a half just to make some money. And I thought, you know, I, I am pretty good at this writing thing, so maybe I can explore this. And I actually, one Saturday afternoon, I was sitting in my office, and I was just looking at writing classified advertisements on the web. And I found one for a, there's something, a, a new photography blog was looking for a writer for a contributor. And so I emailed them and I sent them a few pieces that I had written and some photographs and she interviewed me and I became a contributor for a site called the Photolitariat. And they were a media company in New York that was going to start a photography blog. And, and so I became the senior contributor and it worked out great because I could write whatever I wanted to write about And I would just upload it, to, upload it to WordPress, and then she would pay me per article, and then up and publish it on the site, you know, at her schedule. And so it started at fifteen dollars a post, and it ended at fifty. And I would write, I would have, you know, five to ten posts go up a week. It's interesting because it also puts in perspective as, as a professional photographer. I just uh, recently read uh, two biographies, one on Eve Arnold and one on Lisette Model. It seems like even, I mean, today it's a reality that photographers still struggle to continuously do kind of their core work. So you have to, as you mentioned in the beginning, you have to diversify to survive, right? Yeah, you absolutely do. And, and so even when I was doing the writing, you know, that wasn't giving me a full-time income. So I was still trying to get assignment work and I was still trying to 
I still had stock agencies, although at the time the agency income was really starting to fall off. Um, and I just, and I, I tried to do as much as I could. And, and, uh, but the writing thing is the thing that stuck it. I, I enjoyed doing it every day and I started writing more on my own blog. And the thing that, that just kind of worked out well for me is when I became, you know, was I, when, when I was introduced as the senior contributor at the Photolitariat and started writing this content every week, I was already an established working pro with, you know, say 12 years of experience behind me or whatever it was at the time. And so that gave me legitimacy right off the bat. And so between that and between my writing style, I actually attracted a decent audience on the site and, and people, my writing really resonated with people. And I started to develop my style, which was a real down to earth, real world attitude where I'll review things and I'll write about techniques in a way that it's just, it's what I would tell somebody, you know, if I have a piece of gear that I like, I'd say, yeah, this is a great piece of gear. It works for me. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat and review everything that's great. I'm only going to review things that I genuinely am interested in using, or I think that would work for somebody who wants to shoot photos like me. And, and I, I put across techniques in such a way that I don't gloss over a lot of the things that, that you tend to read about. And I don't try to overwhelm the reader. I, I just try to lay it out in a very easy to understand conversational way and and oftentimes I'll I'll point things out in such a way where I'm saying, yeah, this is a common thing that people talk about, but don't worry about this. You don't need to worry about that. Concentrate on this. This is what really matters. And so my yes, yeah, so my writing style resonated with people. And after two years, the photolitariat decided to shut down, and I just brought all of that knowledge and experience and, and new blogging uh, experience over to my own blog, and took off from there. And that was around 2011. I think the, the the no BS approach always works with people who look for for real information. Speaking of of real information, you've been working as a as a photo editor. What did you learn in on that side of the business that helped you as a photographer? Yeah, that was a invaluable experience. Uh, before I left Boston, I worked for a year as a full time. Uh, I was the assistant photo editor at a small stock photo agency, and that that experience, you know, looking at thousands of photos every single day, I learned how to spot a good photograph. I learned, you know, the, the qualities that make for a compelling photo. Cause when you're looking at so many pictures quickly, you know, pages after pages after pages of slides in these file boxes, you learn to spot a photo very quickly. And, and then you learn to identify, okay, well, what is it about this photo that made it stand out from, the other 19 on the page or the other thousand in the box. And so I, I got a real feel for, for a clean, simple composition that would, would catch the eye in an effective way. And then on the, the professional side of that, I learned all about the photo buying business, how to deal with clients, uh, how to you know, deal with stock photo pricing. Back then I was even introduced to photo quote software, which I'm still using, you know, 20, 25 years later, you know, and so, or 20, however, however long it's been. And so I just learned about how the, the photo buying business works. And, and so when I was fired from my day job, that was the first thing that went to my mind was, 
well, hey, I know I know how to do this. I I was a photo editor for a year. I I know what how to approach this, and so that was an invaluable experience on both ends. Would you agree that a good picture can be seen without looking at it exactly, meaning you can spot kind of the the harmony, the composition, without even like looking closely at the content? Yeah, I do. I I, I think that as we talked about earlier that. that a still photograph has an inherent power to draw the viewer in and ignite their imagination. And it, it's probably the same thing that, uh, that successful painters and other visual artists are able to convey. And the, the difference is that a photograph is real life. It's exactly what we see. It's exact representation of what we see. Whereas a painting is and a sketch and a drawing, they are, by the nature, not an exact representation. It's a bunch of, you know, egg whites and dye or oil and colors or graphite on a page. And the, art, the artistry that goes into to coming up with a composition and, shade and, rep and reproducing the shading and light in such a way that draws a viewer in You can do the same thing with a photograph, but you but it's trickier because you have to be more selective about how to use your subject matter. And the easy example is, you know, if I go take just whip my phone out of my pocket and I just take a picture of a scene and I show it to somebody, they're going to be like, "Yeah, so what? Okay, that's what am I looking at? Big deal." You know, the the problem is that we experience real life every day. Every second we're experiencing real life. And if we're seeing shown a picture, If we look at a picture that just reproduces the exact same thing that we just saw, there, it doesn't draw interest. You know, we already saw that. Why do we need to see it again? So the trick with photography is to arrange your subject matter and include interesting lighting in such a way that you, you're not showing the exact scene anymore. You're just suggesting the scene. You're suggesting a scene or even a possible scene because it could be a scene that has yet to unfold. And so you're, you're suddenly drawing the viewer in and you're in, enticing them to use their imagination to, to establish, okay, well, well, what's outside the frame? What's this, what's this subject about to do? What, how is this scene about to unfold? Or else, oh my God, I, this, this moment that happens so quickly, this photographer captured it, this is actually what it looks like. You know, in real life, moments go by too quickly for you to actually see exactly what they look like. But to capture a bird's flights in wings or a, you know, a climber's, you know, reaching for a handhold and the, you know, the expression or the, and the, you know, the light falling on their face, the sweat on their brow, a mountain biker, a runner on a trail and the dirt flying out from the tires of the running shoe, We don't see that stuff in real life. It goes by too fast. So when you capture that, you can create an iconic representation of your scene. Beautifully said. And I think this uh, kind of closes the circle a bit with what we uh, discussed before. For me, an image is always kind of a starting point, like a still image from a movie. Like you want to see what's next, what's going on. Like you want to evoke the interest to, to, to the story to see what happens next. I also fully agree with you that, uh, well, it depends on what angle you come from, but... 
uh, you could say that uh, I mean painting is easier than than photographing because in painting you can invent things while in in photography you have to actually arrange them and kind of put them together in an interesting way I think that's an interesting observation I, I will agree that I think there's two parts of that in some ways painting is easier because yes you can invent you can paint whatever scene you want I think the craft of painting is inherently much more difficult than photography uh, but I think there's a huge challenge at photography to arrange what what's existing in a compelling way. And oftentimes that means excluding things or framing in a certain way or using different lenses or they using light in a very appealing way. So yeah, that, the, the challenge of the photography is different than the challenge of painting. I agree with you. I would I would say that uh, every photographer could actually profit from learning painting. That's I I painted a lot, and I see today I'm only four years into photography, uh, but I see I draw a lot of knowledge and and kind of my aesthetical approach from what I've been doing on a blank piece of paper. Yeah, I try to draw and sketch sometimes, and, and I'm not very good at it, but uh, I'm intrigued by that notion of of scribbling a few lines. And, and making enough information that you incite the imag imagination to to you know put that together as as a scene. You know, a good sketch artist can just scribble a few things, and when you look at it, you recognize it for what it is, even though it's only a, a, a faint abbreviation of what it is. And I think that's that's the word I like to use when I when I talk about this stuff is abbreviation. As artists and visual artists, we're, our job is to abbreviate the scene and give the viewer enough information so that they can imagine the rest and put their own and add their own emotional response to it. I fully agree. And, and a, a good painter also, you can see a good painter actually develops kind of a way of how he draws in very simple terms, very fast. And I think that's what we have in common with photographers because photographers have to react fast and kind of do the same mental trick, but with different tools. You have to be like swift and kind of have your own style and then do it within one or two seconds. So there's, there is a lot of parallel, even though I agree learning to paint is probably a whole different beast than uh, picking up a camera. Yeah, I would agree. My, my best friend uh, from high school is a realist painter and he's a fantastic artist. Um, his craft is you know, through the roof. He's unbelievably talented at what, and he's worked so hard to hone his technique. And at the same time, I've seen a lot of really good visual artists who, you know, they couldn't take a picture to save their life. <laughs> <laughs> so it, there's, there's real, it, it's, it's a challenge on all ends. Yes. Speaking of speaking of challenges, uh, let's uh, slightly uh, switch the subject. I have, uh, by preparing for this podcast, I have read that you describe yourself as a not an off the grid guy. Now, I have talked to a few landscape and adventure photographers, and what I notice is that each and every one of them has a special relation to to nature and being out there. Uh, what is yours? What drives you to go to these remote locations? And what is your connection with, with this environment? A lot of my connection with the environment is traveling through it under my own power. So whether I'm hiking or climbing or skiing or mountain biking, uh, or these days sometimes in the airplane, which isn't quite under my own power, but it's uh, at least under my own skill, uh, I, en I enjoy moving through the landscape and, and seeing what's around the next bend. And, and I, enjoy, I enjoy the magnificence of, of the scene. 
but I tend to be someone who's not going to stand in one place and look at it. I'm going to hike through it. I'm going to walk through it and I'm going to look and take it in as I move. And, and, and that's, yeah, I'd say that's what's driven me over the years is, is my goal to go explore these places and, and be in them and, and to move through them. Moving through them is a good point because um, I saw you, you're flying a lot. I mean, in Alaska, it seems to be a plane seems to be something that you potentially own at least a, a larger part of the population than, than uh, in, in middle Europe or in, in uh, Northern America. How do you manage because you're by yourself in this plane, right? So how do you manage to shoot, change lenses, uh, work as a photographer while actually controlling your plane? How, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, there's a lot of safety involved, but more than anything else, it, it, it harkens back to experience and, and specifically my experience as, as what I call being an action and adventure photographer. Uh, my entire career has revolved heavily around shooting things that move quickly. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the challenge of capturing moving subjects and especially very fast-moving subjects. And, and so that, that means I have to be able to see and recognize subject matter quickly. I'm able to spot potential convergences with subject background light and how the subject might interact with those elements in the scene. Uh, exposure, camera settings. And so all of that comes into play when I'm flying and shooting. And... So my method is basically to take off and, and head out over the mountains, some, find some area that I'm interested in shooting that day. It's usually a matter of chasing light, you know, finding, finding what, what peaks or what areas of the mountains have most appealing light or, or some shape that I want to explore that day. And then I get to where I'm in the photograph. I open the window and... I steer with my left hand and I shoot with my right hand using the LCD, using the screen on my Fuji cameras. And, and so that, that technique of being able to think quickly and, and spot subject matter quickly, that comes into play. Because I, I took a friend flying the other day to shoot aerials with me and, you know, I explained to him, you can't, when we're moving 80 miles an hour through the sky, we can't just say, oh, that's a really cool scene. I think I'm going to photograph that. And because as soon as you identify something, you passed it. It's gone. The, the, sub, the scene's changed. Your vantage point has suddenly changed. And so you have to learn to shoot through subject matter, you know, recognize scenes in advance and just, oh, I see that coming up ahead or that now, that. I'm able to pick things out of the landscape and spot those convergences with a great deal of efficiency and speed and that and so that's yeah that's why I, I i think that's my greatest strength as a photographer and that's where i see an incredible parallel to to uh, what i do street photography i could uh, sign every word, word you just said just my environment is the city and and yours is a plane There's also an aspect of freedom. It must be a majestic feeling to, to, to take off with your plane and just go wherever the light takes you. It's pretty cool. Every time I go up, I'm like, I can't believe they let you do this. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't have to go ask per, like permission or go sign some kind of forms. I just, I went and got in my plane and I, you know, I had to tell the 
get clearance from the tower for takeoff. But after that, I'm flying and I can pretty much fly wherever I want. Um, and, and I can explore the landscape in whatever path or fashion I want. It, it really is an amazing feeling being up there all by myself or with one other person watching the light. And the way I see it, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing scenes and capturing photos that no one has ever seen and no one will ever capture in exact the same way, exactly the same way. Because I, I it, you know, the, the, the infinite variations of a flight path past a particular mountain at a particular time when the light is hitting at a particular, on a day of the year with a particular quality and color, you know, I, I consider that to be, you know, especially ha having done it numerous times, trying to photograph some of the same mountains year after year, uh, each time you go up, it's a unique experience. It sounds fascinating. I'm uh, usually putting my shoes on in the morning and then walk for 12 hours. But, you know, sitting in a plane and just take it off must be must be just simply amazing. Let me let me ask you something else. I mean, you're you're in Alaska. Uh, winters are really cold. Summers are probably really humid. Um, how do you manage your, your camera system under these extreme weather conditions? I'm, I'm especially thinking of power batteries or devices getting too cold to perform. Condensation might be an issue. How, how do you prepare for these kind of things? Uh, well, it's funny you say that Anchorage is that Alaska is so cold. We were just joking this morning uh, that it's too warm right now. We're already in the 40s during the daytime. Um, so, and so we, we've seen some, some variations in climate affect us over the past few years, but yeah, generally Alaska is cold in the wintertime and it's, uh, fortunately it's not too hot in the summer here in, uh, in Anchorage, but yeah, I'm, I'm often shooting in the wintertime in below zero temperatures Fahrenheit. And, and so I always take, you know, as we, as most of us know, Most of us Fuji shooters know mirrorless camera batteries just don't last as long as DSLR batteries, but they all smaller and lighter. And so I will take along at least two or three extra batteries uh, every time I go out shooting in the wintertime. And I found that uh, yeah, chemical hand warmer packs can keep, keep batteries warm in your pocket as well. Uh, I found that the cameras perform extremely well at cold temperatures. Uh, I can attest that the cameras will work well below the stated 14 degrees Fahrenheit that the manuals say. Uh, there have been particular times where I've left the camera on the tripod all night long outside the tent at 10 or 20 below Fahrenheit, and I wake up the next morning and it works fine. And uh, you know, I might need to change the battery very quickly. But uh, in fact, I have a picture that I that I put on my blog a few couple years ago where I did what I woke up in the morning after the camera was on the tripod all night long, just sitting out there uncovered. It was full of frost. It was covered in ice and I turned it on. It worked fine. So they, they tend to work exceptionally well in the cold. If you have enough batteries, there's no reason you can't keep shooting with the Fujis in, in any kind of conditions. The one thing you have to be aware of is uh, condensation. And that happens when you take a cold camera into a warm environment. And so for example, that, that actually came into play recently when I was photographing uh, that race with Rebecca Rush, you know, I, she came into this checkpoint at midnight and it was pitch black and it was probably 10 or 15 below outside. And I'm shooting as she's coming into the checkpoint. And then she went into the cabin and I followed her in there 
and immediately, you know, I'm looking through the lens and it starts to fog up. And in that case, the only thing you can do is just, you know, you can, you can wipe the front element off with a cloth, but, but there are times when the inside elements will condense as well. And I think that depends on how well it, the weather sealed lenses are. I think a cheaper lens that's not sealed enough will have more condensation on the inner elements, but you just have to wait it out. And fortunately the cabin was, was hot and dry enough from the wood stove that it didn't take very long for the lens and the body to warm up and dry out gradually. But yeah, if you taking cold into warm, uh, condenses, and then if you go right back out, that condensation will freeze. I've had that happen too, where I'll go cold to warm then back to outside. And then there's ice on your lens and then you're, you're pretty much done, especially if it's on the inside. Interesting. I, I didn't know that those cameras can stand these kind of harsh conditions. Uh, another question I have for you is because we talked about transportation, we talked a bit about how to handle your gear under these conditions. Now in Alaska, you might also run into other, you know, uh, living beings that live around you, such as bears. Uh, I don't know if there's wolves, but surely there are mosquitoes in summer. Uh, how do you prepare for that? Do you have anything with you just in case? Or how, what's your setup to deal with these things? Yeah, in the summertime, the, the animals that I'm most likely to encounter are moose and bears. Uh, moose are the most common. Uh, we see them year-round. And you just tend to try to steer clear. And if you're on a trail and you come around a corner and there's a moose, you just turn around and go the other way. Um, they're generally... They can be quite cantankerous, and especially during the, the spring when they're tired of this deep snow and the fall when they're in rutting and mating season. Uh, the males can be very aggressive. In the spring and summer, the mama moose with young can be extremely aggressive. So it's just a matter of turning and going the other way. Uh, bears are a different story. Most of the time, bears tend to stay out of your way. They, they don't want to have interactions with people. And most encounters happen when somebody's surprised. You come around a the corner, there's a bear. Um, usually they're quite far away. Um, and if and most encounters, the bear will just run off. Uh, I do carry bear spray, which is essentially a can of pepper spray. And it, it does the job. I've never had to use it. Um, like I said, most times bear encounters, they just, if you see a bear at a distance, you just go the other way. And if they see you or smell you, they're likely to, to go the other way as well, or, or just keep on their path. So you'll, so you'll just alter your path. So fortunately, I haven't had any close bear encounters, but I've definitely seen them up here. Well, fingers crossed that uh, you'll never get too close to one. Let's, let's talk about uh, your book, or rather your books that you just released. Tell us a little bit about this book series, because this, this exists for quite a while now, right? Yeah, so it, the book is called X-Series Unlimited, and it's, uh, it, it started out as an... Uh, it, it's kind of funny how it came about. I, I considered writing a, a Fuji guide. I'd written a couple of, lots of Fuji blog posts and some a tips and tricks guide. And I thought about doing a longer guide, but I just, I, I didn't see myself doing a camera manual. And so I avoided it, much like I've avoided video. Um, but then right time, right place happened. I was teaching a workshop at a store in Seattle and people just had so many questions. You know, can my camera do this? How do I do this with the X-T2? How do I make it do this? I just moved from Canon. Does it, will it do this? And so I was so inundated with questions and I recognized that there were so many 
things that people wanted to know about the Fuji cameras and what they can do, I thought, I'm just going to write it all down. This is, this, is, this is what needs to be done. So I came home and I spent a month writing a 50,000 word ebook. And I published that on my blog in July of 2017. And it quickly became the go-to guide for Fuji shooters. And a lot of people downloaded it, people, thousands of people all over the world. And, and I think the reason it resonated so well is for the same reasons I talked about before. My writing style is very matter-of-fact, straightforward, real world. I tell people what they can do with these settings. I run through every setting, elaborate on exactly what it does, how you can use it, and I show examples of, of how I use it. And that inspires people to think about what's possible for them and how to expand their creativity and maximize their performance with the cameras. And, and so it did really well. And I came up with the idea, since Fujifilm updates their cameras with firmware, I, I had the idea to do the same thing. And so I've, I try to update the book once or twice a year. And as new models and new firmware gets introduced, I will sit down and write down, write out the updates and include, you know, revise the book and, and update the PDF file with new information. So yeah, and this last late last fall, I did an update that included full coverage of the X-T3. And, and that also included the X-H1 as well. And I, and I also included all of the firmware for the X-T2 and the other cameras that had been in, uh, introduced in the previous months. Yeah, so I, I will anticipate now that the X-T30 is out, I anticipate that I'll do an update that includes that as well. Although most of the features, all of the features in the X-T30 will be found in, in the book already, but I'll go through and, you know, establish this is a feature on the X-T30 and, you know, I'll make revision notes that tell people what's been added. What I think is beautiful about this is that you kind of uh, adapted the, the Fujifilm philosophy of Kaizen, continuous improvement. And you also mentioned to me before we recorded that people who already purchased the book can actually download the updates for free? Yeah, so anybody who purchases X-Series Unlimited, the ebook version from my site, uh, there's also a print version that Rocky Nook published last May. Uh, and unfortunately, that issue came out, that edition came out before the X-T3. So even though most of it's relevant to X-T3 users, the, the X-T3 dedicated settings are not in that version. So anybody who purchases the ebook version on my site, I'll send an email with an update link to get the free update. And, and that's worked out really well. And sometimes people don't get that and they'll email me later uh, and I'm happy to, to give it to them. And that's the thing that, that I, it's been real fulfilling to me. You know, on one hand, the book was very successful and has been. And, and so that's great for my, my own professional success. But I really enjoy and I'm driven by the idea of helping other photographers achieve their own creative performance and, and having fun with the cameras. And so I try to answer every email I get. I try to, you know, I, I, it's been enjoyable to get to know a lot of my readers through social media messaging and email exchanges and to get to know them as people and see what they're creating with the cameras. Because the, the thing that, that drives me more than anything else is, is I love shooting photos and I, I know what it's like to get a great image. And it doesn't matter if, if someone else is a pro or not, 
it feels the same to get a fantastic image that you worked to create and that you, you know, positioned everything correctly and you used a setting that you thought would work and it all came out in the end. And I love, I want that for everybody. And so I'm, I'm intrigued by, I love helping people. I want, I want everybody to have the same amount of fun that I have with the Fuji cameras and photography in general. I share the feeling. Um, how many times are you, speaking of this, how many times a year do you get excited about a picture you took? I mean, really excited, like a pro photographer saying, wow, I'm really happy what I did here. Oh, I think I shoot stuff every month that I'm in love with. Um, I, 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 yeah, it's hard to isolate exactly how often that is, but, um, Yeah, I, I think it happens quite often, and and certainly there are things that are that are you know exceptional above all else. But I I get excited about my work every time I go out, and I think every month I'm creating stuff that I'm extremely passionate about. I'm just you know sometimes I think it's important to talk about uh, especially when you start out in photography a little bit to talk about expectation management. So for me, it's always interesting to understand you know how many moments of, 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 of true happiness you achieve by saying, okay, this is really what I, what I wanted to do. And, it, you know, enjoy the feeling of happiness that, that kind of transpires from, from this moment. I think you touched on a really important uh, topic in expectations and disappointment in photography is something that uh, we're all subject to. And it, it can be a dominating fact in our photography lives, especially when we're, bombarded by social media and we see what everyone else is doing it's easy to get discouraged and well i'm not making great pictures this month i'm i don't have anything awesome i didn't i, I came back from this trip and i didn't create this magical moment that i thought i would get the chance for a lifetime and and i went to iceland and I, how come i didn't get this you know the amazing shot that everybody else got and and i think there it, it can be a dangerous trap to fall into to get sucked into to expecting that you'll always create the awesome photo or, or expecting that you'll get your version of some great scene that everyone else has photographed. And, and I think I tend to view photography as, as a, a process and it's, it's a companion to the fun that you should be having. When you go out and explore the world, even if you're there to photograph, you're still there as a human being and enjoying the landscape and, enjoying what your visual senses are taking in and as well as your ears and your nose and feeling the wind on your face. And you're there experiencing something that, that possibly no one else is seeing at that moment. And, and I think that uh, a lot of the disappointment comes in because when we visit a really cool place, we expect to come back with great pictures. And if our first initial review doesn't show you know, doesn't reveal an amazing shot, we tend to, you know, we get disappointed and we think badly, oh, I failed, I didn't do a good job. In time, you can kind of disconnect the expectation aspect from what you actually got. If you can look at your pictures with a fresh eye, you'll start to pick through and see, yeah, I actually really excited about what I got here. And, and, and I think it's just, it's a matter of, like I said, disconnecting your expectations And tempering, you know, re realizing that that your expectations are always going to be higher if you go to a really cool place, right? And so you just you just have to manage that. 
I think there's there's also a, a chain of events that happens. You need to be excited and happy to be there first, and then you see the pictures. If you go there to see the pictures, you kind of too tense to really enjoy because I think good pictures come out of joy and out of moments. I think you're exactly right, and and that's a, a good a, a good point when especially with social media. You know, people talk really badly about social media, and I think there are some negative aspects to it. Um, it, it does inspire us to get out and go explore the world. Unfortunately, it, some of that inspiration plays out where people travel to the same spot to get the same picture. And if they don't get the same picture, uh, then they, they're disappointed. Um, I'm a real proponent of forging your own path. The world is an amazing and huge place, and there are different trails and roads and paths for everyone. There's, there's an infinite amount of places and styles in which you could explore the world. And, and I, at least for me, um, and, I, and I think that ultimately this is true no matter who you are, is when you go do your own trip and forge your own path and see things that you might not have expected, that's when you're going to come back with the most fulfilling photos. You'll have the most fulfilling stories. Uh, you'll, you'll have the best memories. But if you're just there, if you go somewhere with a mindset to get a particular photo that you saw everyone else take, that's not you're not going to walk away as fulfilled as if you went down a road you might not have thought to explore and you see something new and exciting uh, or just different than what you had originally anticipated. And maybe you didn't even capture a photo of it. Because ultimately, as you said, your journey should be about happiness and and intriguing your own senses than just about coming back with a great shot. Yeah, and also embrace, uh, to a degree, insecurity on the way there because you don't have no guarantee. I mean, reproducing an image you've seen uh, only goes so far to give you a close thing to what was there, but going out and just searching, that's a whole nother mental um, uh, challenge. Yeah, the searching is the searching is everything. If, I teach quite often with Jack Graham, who's another ex-photographer, another Fujifilm shooter. Uh, he is a real proponent of talking about the search. The hunt is, that's the game. For him, the search is everything. And as soon as he presses the button, it's done for him. In fact, he, he'll, he'll tell you when he teaches, once he, once he takes the picture, he couldn't care. He couldn't care what he does with it. You, you know, he couldn't care what happens. The search for that moment and capturing it, pressing the button, that's it for him. I would I would strongly agree the longer I photograph, the more in the beginning editing and, and kind of, you know, messing with your images is kind of fun because you, you, you search options, you figure out what you can do. The longer I shoot, the more I'm interested in finding the picture rather than editing it. Go so far, I haven't edited for a year, which I will never do again because it was terrible to go all through all those images at once. But, you know, the, the process of creating, to me, is way more interesting than the process of, uh, of administration. Uh, that's a huge, I, I can echo that with, a, with wholehearted enthusiasm. Um, that mentality is, has driven my photography these days. And it's, it's given me more excitement and passion about the photography process than anything else. And that's a, a huge reason why I'm so excited about the Fuji cameras. You know, we all know they produce great-looking JPEGs, and they have the film simulations, and they have a lot of creative settings. Well, that stuff drives me. I, I'm 
passionate about the Fuji colors. You know, I used to use film. And so I feel like I'm back shooting film again because I'm, I'm making creative decisions on the spot and I'm not deferring those decisions until later when I get back on my computer and have to edit everything. And so I, I shoot almost everything in JPEG these days. And for me, raw is an occasional backup, an occasional safety backup. Uh, but, but I'm driven. I, I strive to, to nail it in the moment when I'm there on the scene, when I'm in real time with the, the emotions and the excitement that's unfolding in that moment. And so I, I tend to, ver I process very little and, and I, and, and I do tweak some photos in Luminar just to, as Frank Zappa used to say, to put the eyebrows on it, just to, you know, maybe pull out a little bit of contrast, but I, I so rarely edit raw photos. I just, I would rather take photos than sit at my computer and slide sliders. I'm so with you. I mean, from day one, I shot uh, Fuji JPEGs. I'm in love with, uh, especially with Chrome and turning Chrome in, into black and white. It's also funny how much uh, I think, uh, from my point of view, street photography has left a mark uh, on, on your approach to, to photography. I, think, I find that quite fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you actually, as you mentioned, that you shot the original Velvia and Provia films. How, how happy are you with the simulations that we get? Oh, I couldn't be happier. I, in fact, that's the first thing that drew me in. In 2011, when I was a, a happy but Well, I was, <laughs> I was still a Nikon shooter and, uh, and uh, an ignorantly happy Nikon shooter. <laughs> um, at, at the time, though, I, I had to say I, I was starting to get really tired of carrying all the heavy gear. And at one point, I did uh, kind of blow out the muscles of my forearm from shooting one-handed with heavy cameras and, and heavy Nikon lenses. But in 2011, I was at Photo Plus, and I, and I wandered by the Fujifilm booth at the end of the last day. I was on my way out of the trade show to run to Penn Station and catch my train so I can catch a plane back home to Alaska. And I stopped by the Fujifilm booth at about quarter to four. And the X-10 had just been released. And it was, you know, the X-100 had been out for a few months. And, and I hadn't really paid much attention. But as, you know, as a blogger, I, writing for the Photolotariat at the time, I was trying to see what was new and what was intriguing. And so I, I stopped and I saw this X-10 And I fell in love with it. I was so intrigued. It was such a darling little camera. It, it reminded me of <clears throat> a classic old camera. And it had dials and a really wonderful little design. And then when I picked it up and the guy behind the booth showed me some of the features uh, and especially the film simulations, and I saw those little Velvia and Provia you know, icons, I was blown away and I was like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been missing. And so I got the X10 and I went home and I fell in love with it. And I instantly started shooting JPEGs, you know, in Velvia mode, Velvia film sim, and even shooting the black and whites. And I fell in love again. And that was the start of everything. And so, yeah, I'm a huge advocate for the film simulations. They drive me. They drive my photography every, every minute I'm out taking pictures. I'm thinking about how am I going to portray this scene? Do I want bold and vivid or do I want subdued and abbreviated? Do I want black and white? And that's the beauty of the, what they've done is, is, is Fuji has given us a set of, a set of choices, a set of looks 
that allow for a very wide exploration of photography without overwhelming us with too many choices. Two straight up gear questions. As you mentioned, uh, the T10, um, what, what do you have today at home in terms of Fujifilm gear? What's, what's in your gear cupboard or, or your, your gear bag? Uh, my gear cupboard is full of cameras. It's full of every Fujifilm camera that I've owned. Um, but the thing that I, I'm, I'm shooting with the X-T3 these days, and uh, I have a lot of lenses. I have, I don't have all the Fuji lenses, but I have many of them. And the ones that, that draw me in uh, year after year, the, things that, the, the, the glass that inspires me the most are the little primes. I love the F2 primes. I have the 35, the 50, and, and I have the 90, which is fantastic. But if I just go out for a day of street, I, I mean outdoor photography. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, my, my friend Karen Hutton, she, when I first met her and she saw my work and, and I talked about my approach, she pretty much called me you know, an outdoor street photographer. So when I go out with my camera bag, uh, I'm always carrying the lenses that are always in my bag are the 35 F2 and usually the 50 F2 and a wide angle, which my favorite wide angle is the 14. Although they just came out with a 16 F2, you know, in that series. And so I'm probably going to get that. And, and so, yeah, I, I like to go out with a, a wide middle long or a wide middle sort of long. I also love the 50 to 140 and the 100 to 400. So between the, between those, 14, 35, 50, 90, 50 to 140, 100, 400. I probably use this more than anything else. Although, yeah. Are you somebody that's looking forward to the 33 1.0? Mm, no, there, it, there's a few, few of the lenses don't inspire me like others. And I, the thing that inspires me most are the tiny lenses, the small lenses. So uh, from what I've seen, the 33 is going to be one of the kind of bigger. I mean, it has to be with that fast aperture. And so I'll be intrigued by it, but it's probably not something I would use on a regular basis. Uh, the 8 to 16 is the same way. I have tried it out. It's fantastic lens, I, I, amazing landscape lens. But it's just not something I would carry with me on a regular basis in my bag. I've just gotten so spoiled by the tiny little primes and, and the, the smaller Even the 100 to 400 is for how for how powerful it is. It's not that big. <laughs> what I'm also interested in, by the way, I was about to ask you what is your lonely island setup, but in this context, I think I'd rather ask what's your lonely mountain setup. If you have to choose one body and one lens, what would it be? Uh, you know, it's right now. It's the XT3. Uh, I'm as far as lenses. Um, you know, I always like to say that. Uh, that I couldn't live without a wide angle, but I just, I keep finding myself drawn to that 35, that 35 F2 will do so much. Uh, I shot most, most of this footage I shot on the video of, of Rebecca's you know, fat bike race this winter was with the 35. Um, I used the 23.14 a little bit and I used the 50 and those are the three lenses I use most um, on that particular job. So for me, I just, it, it seems to go back to the 35, which when we think about it, I'm back to that. My very first lens was a 51.4. And the ironic thing is, 
is once I started getting wide angles and telephotos, my 50 millimeter sat unused for years. I rarely took it outside. And now with this little 35 F2, I'm back and I love, I love it. I, so that, so that would probably be it. <laughs> Great. Now we've almost missed it. And as we, as we slowly close into the end of the podcast, um, there's another book we should talk about, uh, and it probably includes a lot of what we talked about in terms of, you know, failure and looking behind the scenes. Uh, the other book we're, we're talking about is called Behind the Landscape. Tell us something about that. Yeah. So that's my latest ebook. It just came out uh, in December. So just, you know, it's about three months ago. And, and it's, uh, it's a behind the scenes journey uh, into my method. And so the way I describe it is it, it lets it, the reader comes along with me and they get to look over my shoulder as I create 16 of my favorite landscape images, all of which were shot in the past five years with, with my Fuji cameras. Uh, and so I talk about my, for each picture I cover, I talk about my, you know, my initial view of the scene, my initial ideas. Uh, I talk through the process of selecting the lens and the exposure that I think I might need to capture the scene, you know, you know, basically outline my specific approach that I'll take in order to capture it in the way I want to shoot it. Uh, and then I'll break down the execution and talk about what actually happened because as, as it often happens, what you think is going to happen isn't what the way it unfolds. And so I talk about how to, how I solved some pr certain problems, how I got around ideas and ultimately how I achieved the, the, the final photo, which I, as I said, these are some of my favorite pictures. I show the outtakes. So I, I, May illustrate how I arrived at that point, you know, the different views and the different exposures, different lenses, different vantage points that I used in order to get to that one. And I even, yeah. And so then after, after I've gotten that scene, I have given my final thoughts, you know, what, how, how do I feel this played out and what would I, what did I learn? What are my three takeaways for for next time so you're basically you're taking the reader on on the journey with you and give him an insight on your thought and, and and your work process yeah and i and i like that because uh i love i love teaching photography and i know that a lot of my readers want to take a workshop with me and i don't for whatever reason i'm i don't offer that many workshops and i'm uh, i do a number of fuji events at camera stores throughout the country and i have taught at the fuji film summit with Jack Graham and Bill Fortney past couple of years. Um, but the reality is that a lot of people um, just aren't able to take a workshop with me. And so this is like taking a virtual workshop with me. Now, if you want to take a, a, a virtual workshop with Dan, uh, might be a small option, but there is an option. We're actually going to give away uh, two of your books. Dan, tell us how, how the listeners can get one of your books. Yeah. And so, um, the way we're going to do this, we, we talked about how the, the best way to do this. And, um, and so I think what we'll do is, is have people sign up for my newsletter. And so if you go to my blog, which is danbaileyphoto.com, and you can find my blog from there. Uh, when you scroll down, you'll find a blue box that says join thousands of other shooters. And when you click that button, uh, you'll, you'll be taken to a box um, to select your camera system. And, you know, Fuji users, you'll see right there, I shoot Fujifilm cameras. You just click that, follow the prompts, and you'll get on my newsletter. 
and I'll go through and I think rather than pick the first uh, one, I'll just choose a random number. Uh, I think that'll be more fair. That'll give more people a chance to, to get in the mix there. So go to my blog, sign up for my newsletter as a Fuji shooter, and I'll pick a random and one person will get a copy of Behind the Landscape and one cop person will get a copy of uh, X-Series Unlimited. I wish you good luck in, in being picked. Second last question, short, what are your top three tips for the Fujifilm X system? The first tip is to have fun. Uh, enjoy, the, enjoy the process. Uh, and photography is a wonderful creative activity. It, it, it's, it's opened so many doors for me, not just professionally, but just the, the inspiration to go explore the world, even the close-up world nearby my house, you know, right, right close to home. So the first, the first tip is to have fun. Um, the second tip, I'm a real, as we talked about, I'm a real proponent of shooting JPEG and explore those film simulations. Explore the different color palettes that you can use to reproduce your subject, or rather, as we talked about, represent your subject and abbreviate your subject. You know, you're trying to create a, an artistic representation. So try the different colors. Try rich, bold velvia. Try subdued classic chrome or the Pro Neglo or even Eterna uh, on the newer cameras, the X-T3 and the X-T30 and the X-H1. And even the black and whites, the Acros. So really play around with those. They have so much creative, so many creative possibilities that they offer. Uh, and the third tip, uh, I guess would be to know your camera um you know just learn learn what it can do learn the settings even if you don't pick up my book uh learn learn what you can do because there's a lot of settings in there that allow for different creative possibilities uh, or even technical possibilities you know if you're shooting fast subjects there are a lot of different autofocus settings that can help you be more efficient and and lead to a higher success rate so get to know your camera Good tip. I, I, I say this in every workshop, you know, sometimes you don't need to buy a new camera. Maybe you maybe need to get more familiar with your existing one, especially, I mean, in the Fujifilm ecosystem, actually, the, the firmware update philosophy allows you to stick with, with one body for quite some time. Yeah, I, I had got an email from a guy yesterday who, who said, oh, you know, X-T3 has odd. I wish I would have waited instead of buying an X-H1. And so I wrote back and I said, you know what? In our society, you could say that about everything. Computers, cars, cameras, iPads, phones, everything. Whenever you buy something, the next best thing is coming right around the corner. But the beauty of the Fuji cameras is that they all share the common settings. And even, even the X-T3 has a few new settings, but most of what it can do are common to every other camera on the lineup. And so, yeah, you, you enjoy what you have and, you know, and the way that you get better is to just shoot more often, just take your camera out and shoot on a regular basis. You know, that, that's the best way to, to increase your proficiency and get better. And the better you get, the more fun you're going to have, because you'll have more confidence. True words. Any, any last words before we end this uh, conversation, Dan, you want to share with the Fujilove community? Uh, it, it's great to see that, that so many people are so enthusiastic about the Fuji cameras. And, you know, a, a resource like Fuji Love is, is it, it's an amazing place to, 
it, it's amazing we all congregate we all share the same passion with photography and the fuji cameras in, in particular and so you know i just want to thank uh you guys for for bringing people together and fostering this learning mentality and this like-minded creative exploration we all have Great. Dan, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I feel your passion for the photography and I think we have some common ground uh, looking at street uh, slash adventure photography. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, taking time to talk to us and uh, we will see and uh, read and hear from you soon. Thank you. Yeah, I, thanks so much, Jens. I really enjoyed being on the show. Thank you for checking in and listening to the Fujilove.com podcast. Check out Fujilove.com where we live and breathe all things Fujifilm and photography with Fujifilm cameras.